about all of this. Sheila Gillespie was in the hospital, Eddie Pritchard, um, Linda Reed, and Pastor Ed's daughter that was admitted to the ICU. So we're gonna pray for all of them before we get started. So Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness, O oh Lord. Lord, you are good, even in situations like this. But we know that you are sovereign over everything that happens in our lives, even illness and sickness, O oh God, and yet you have the power to heal these things, O oh God. So, Lord, we pray that if it be your will, that you would heal all of them and use these situations for your glory. We pray that you would be with the families, that they would make good and wise decisions for the health and well-being of their loved ones. And we pray, God, that you would be glorified in all these situations. God, we need your help tonight during this Bible study so that we can grow in our understanding and our love of your word, that we would <clears throat> see Christ more and more and that we would have grown our love for one another in our obedience to your word, O oh Lord. Help us, God, by the aid of your Holy Spirit to see wonderful things from your word. We pray, God, that you would impart in us a love for truth and righteousness. Help us, God, to obey you for, your, for our good and your glory. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, again, if you don't have a handout, Please grab one of the handouts over there. So for those who walked in late, Pastor Ed is not here today. But nevertheless, we are continuing along on our study of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. We are on chapter six, chapter six of the confession. And I just want to remind everybody our goal and our aim here is not to... Uh, preach the confession, but to determine if the confession, the Baptist confession, is in line and consistent with what the Holy Scriptures teach about God in these different subjects. So we don't want to just blindly follow any man, no matter how good of a preacher he is or how much he has blessed us. We always want to revert back to Scripture to determine if things, these things are so. So that's what we're doing today. So <clears throat> so we're again, we're on chapter six of the our review of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It is a, and the subject matter is the fall of mankind, sin and its punishment. The fall of mankind, sin and its punishment. So chapter six of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith addresses again the fall of man, humanity into sin which is in Genesis chapter 3. So, mankind's fall into sin isn't just a story about a man and his wife, a serpent, and divine punishment. It is a narrative that resonates through the core of the entire Christian faith, touching on many fundamental doctrines that shape our worldview as believers. The fall of man holds cosmic significance, intertwining with our beliefs about the dignity of humanity, the essence of marriage, gender roles, salvation, and other critical aspects of the Christian faith. It also serves as a lens through which we view 
man's depravity, um, how we interpret other passages of Scripture, how we understand God's sovereignty, God's omniscience, and God's immutability. And so basically, in essence, our understanding or our comprehension of the fall of mankind ripples through the fabric of the entire Christian faith. So if you get the fall wrong, you get a bunch of other doctrines wrong, okay? Your understanding, your doctrine of sin has a a direct correlation to your doctrine of salvation, your doctrine of the church, your doctrine of pretty much every other Christian doctrine, okay? So if you get this wrong, it's like a domino effect. You get a bunch of other stuff wrong, all right? Furthermore, while the 1689 Confession shares much in common with our Presbyterian brothers, they have the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 6 here is where we begin to see very distinct differences between what Baptists believe and what Presbyterians believe concerning the subject of covenant theology. This is where the differences start to really show up. So, The differences between uh, Presbyterians and Baptists are not just that we don't baptize babies, okay? The difference is the reason they baptize babies and we don't baptize babies starts here with the fall of man. What we understand the fall of man to be, the nature of it, where it happened, when it happened, why it happened, all of these impact our understanding of covenant theology, okay? So you may be wondering, what does covenant theology have to do with the fall of mankind, all right? And it's a brilliant question. It's a great question. And the answer lies in the fact that the 1689 or Reformed Baptists believe that the fall occurred within the context of a covenant, okay? Specifically, the covenant of works, okay? So as we examine chapter six of this confession, so we're doing chapter six, paragraph one. That's all we're gonna get through today because a bunch of information. So we're only gonna get through um, the first paragraph of chapter six. And um, you can ask any questions you want. However, I'm not trying to be rude, but if you ask a question that doesn't have to do with this topic, I'm going to politely answer your question after the Bible study, okay? Just so we don't get derailed, because there's a lot of information we got to get through, okay? So not, it, don't, get, don't take it personal if I don't, okay? So in this chapter of the Confession, we'll explore the covenant of works, the temptation, the fall, God's profound purpose in permitting the fall, all with the aim of gaining a deeper insight into our faith and our understanding of God's glorious sovereignty. Amen? So that's where we're going. If you got your handouts, all of that is laid out there on your handout. Our first section that we'll be dealing with is titled The Covenant of Works. Let me read what the paragraph actually says. It says... This is chapter 6 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, paragraph 1. God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would lead to life 
if they kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating, by eating the forbidden fruit. God was pleased in keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit this act because he had purposed to direct it for his own glory. That's what the confession says. We're going to see if that's what the Bible says. All right. So this first statement here that says <clears throat> God created humanity upright and perfect. Genesis chapter one, verse 31 says, and God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day, the sixth day. So in chapter one of Genesis, God ends each day by acknowledging that it was good. So he creates a bunch of stuff every day and he says it's good. But according to Genesis 1.31, after God creates man in his own image and likeness, he says it is very good, right? Implying that his act of creation had reached its climax, its zenith in the creation of humanity, right? God's assessment of his creation is crystal clear. Man is the pinnacle of creation, right? You and I hold far more valuable, far more value than any animal, okay? I'm not a dog person. I know people are dog persons and cat persons. It's fine. I won't hold it against you. But all of us are far more valuable than any animal, okay? We are made in the image and the likeness of God. And we are therefore God, the pinnacle of God's creation. That's what the Bible says. And after making man, God's declaration of it's very good has pro profound significance for us. Okay? It not only underscores humanity's unique and favorite position before God, but it also highlights the privileged beginning that Adam and Eve enjoyed before God. Okay? So Ecclesiastes 7 29 reinforces this notion and idea by affirming that God originally fashioned humanity in an upright state. When it says, this is what Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So this text shows us that in their original state, Adam and Eve were entirely upright, devoid of any fault, corruption of nature, or sin. And this emphasizes that, this emphasizes the privileged and unblemished nature of their beginning, of humanity's beginning. The Bible clearly and unambiguously teaches that Adam was created able to not sin. That make sense to you? Adam was able to not sin. He was able to sin, clearly, because history bears that out, but he was also able to not sin. Adam is, very, Adam is different than you and I. You and I have a sin nature. Adam had no sin nature, right? Adam had no sin nature. Adam 
all of Adam's faculties function the way God originally intended man to be. Right? Adam was created the way God intended humanity to be. Sinless and without a corrupt nature. Right? Thomas Boston says this. He captures the beauty of Adam in his original state. He says this. He says, There was light in his understanding, sanctity in his will, rectitude in his affections. There was such a harmony among all his faculties that his members yielded to his affections, his affections yielded to his will, his will obeyed his reason, and his reason was subject only to the law of God. Right? So this is the state that Adam was in. And this was man's, humanity's, original state when God entered into a covenant with Adam. Now, it is in this sinless, privileged condition that God gave Adam a righteous law to obey. And you see this? This is where the confession states, he gave them a righteous law that would have led to life had they kept it but threatened death if they broke it. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17 says this, And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, the Lord gives Adam a righteous law to obey. Then he gives Adam a stark warning. He gives Adam a stark warning for disobeying this law and implied in that warning is a promise of reward for obedience. So this is where much contention starts to prop up in the Christian faith. Uh, much debate among Christians over the centuries stemming from the fact that Genesis 2, 16 through 17 does not explicitly state that compliance with God's law would guarantee life, right? It's implied. It doesn't specifically state that. So you have some Christians who say, oh, there's no such thing as a covenant of works because Genesis 2, 16, 17 doesn't say covenant, it doesn't say works, and it doesn't promise life. Well, the Bible doesn't say Bible, and doesn't say Trinity. Nevertheless, if the concept is there, then it's a legitimate concept. So that's what we have to find out, right? So Genesis 2, 16 through 17 undeniably presents the threat of death upon disobedience to the law. When it says in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And we can deduce that Obedience by logical extension would lead to life. So I have a question. If obedience would bring death, what do we expect obedience to bring? It's not a trick question. It's a legitimate question you should be answering. Life. Okay. Clearly the answer is life. Second, the presence of the tree of life in the garden in Genesis 2 verse 9 implies the promise of life. 
The Bible doesn't say exactly how, but it implies that there's a promise of life. And lastly, there are numerous passages in the Bible that emphasize life as the reward for upholding God's laws. You can see this in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11, when the Bible declares that I, the Lord, gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which, if a person does them, he shall live. Right? This affirms the implicit truth that obedience is linked to the gift of life. So in essence, uh, Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17, uh, undeniably, presents the threat of death for disobedience, the promise of life, while it is not explicitly expressed, but nevertheless it can be discerned um, as an underlying truth that runs throughout the passage. So when you combine all of these elements, it becomes abundantly clear that Scripture affirms the relationship between God and man prior to the fall is nothing less than a covenant. This covenant, like any other covenant, is defined by essential components. There's a stipulation, right? There's a stipulation. Do not eat from that tree, right? There's a promise, implied promise of life if you obey and a threat, a sanction of death if you disobey, right? These components all fall within the realm of covenant categories and unequivocally establish the nature of this relationship between Adam and God as a covenant relationship. So it's in this state of righteousness, humanity existed in a covenant relationship with their creator. So Adam holds a very unique position as a representative head of this covenant. Adam holds this unique position. He's bearing the responsibility as the federal head of the entire human race. This is why Romans 5, 5 says, all men die in Adam. Okay? This is, all this is going to be important later. Okay? He bears the responsibility as the federal representative head of the entire human race. His obedience within this covenant had profound potential to either secure eternal life, not only for himself, but also for Eve and all of their descendants, or ensure death for all of us. So, all of us are going to die in this room, right? Unless the Lord returns before that happens. And all of us are going to die because we're descendants of Adam, right? Everybody in this room today is, if you're a believer, you're battling sin. If you're not a believer, you're indulging in it, okay? And the reason that that's the case, we all have corrupt natures from birth. And the reason that it, that, that is, is because we are all Adam's posterity, we are all Adam's descendants, right? He is the federal head of this covenant, right? And like any covenant, there's always a federal head. There's a head, a representative head of every covenant. And the descendants of that covenant head receive either the curses or the benefits of that covenant. For example, none of us are drowned in here today, right? God made a covenant with Noah, never to flood the earth again. We're all descendants of Noah, right? And so, by virtue of the fact that we are Noah's descendants, we receive the benefits of that covenant that God made with Noah, right? All of this is going to make a lot of sense later. Just stay with me, okay? So, 
Furthermore, on account of this upright, sinless, and privileged standing that Adam had, again, Adam possessed the capacity to offer God perfect and perpetual obedience. Right? This is an extraordinary circumstance. And it's rare in human history. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only other man in the history of humanity who, have, who has been in this position, right? Who has been in this position. So listen, before we start to apply, one of the, one of the mistakes we make as Christians is we immediately run to run to application, okay? But you need to understand what you're reading first before you do that. So in some ways, you're not like Adam at all, okay? Adam is a unique individual in redemptive history in some ways, okay? Adam is the federal head of humanity. All of us are where we are because of him, okay? Yes, sir. I was going to say, could you explain federal head? Representative head, okay? We all have... He asked me to explain the word federal. Okay, so federal is just another word for representative, okay? So, 1689, Sorry. that's okay. Baptist covenant theology is called 1689 federalism because Jesus is the federal head of the covenant. So, that's why that word it keeps coming back up, federal. Just means representative, don't be afraid by it. I'm going to explain it. If you got questions, just stop me, I'll explain it. So, he's the federal head of all humanity, okay? So, there are... There are things in the Bible that are describing redemptive history that you need to understand, that you need to know, and they don't necessarily apply to you in a way that you should be doing them. For example, you're not going to go die on a cross for anybody, right? Not to redeem them of their sin. You may die on a cross being persecuted, but that's not going to redeem anybody of their sins, right? So there are, there are some things that are in the scriptures that are truth, right? And they're redemptive his, historical events that are important, right? And they're there for you to understand them and believe them, not necessarily do them, right? That makes sense to you? Okay, so... This is one of those things. Adam is the representative federal head of humanity, of one group of humanity, okay? When Adam was initially created, he did not reside in the garden. If you got your Bibles open, turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he formed. Okay? If you drop down to verses 15 and 16, it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Okay? And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So this is important for a couple of different reasons. I'll explain to you why. So it was within the garden that the Lord entered into a covenant with Adam. And he introduced an additional law alongside the, the, the natural law that was already written on Adam's heart the moment he was created. So Romans, 2, chap, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, makes a statement that all men know the law of God. It is written on their heart, right? So by, so by virtue of the fact that all of us, that, God, that we're creation and God is creator, we're obligated to obey God without reward. That makes sense to you? So because he's your creator, you should just do what he says, whether you get eternal life or not. He's not obligated to provide a reward to his creation for obeying him, right? So the reason why we have a covenant with God is because he introduces positive law. He introduces additional law into, the, in, into natural law. Okay, so there's Adam should obey God just because he's his creator. But then God takes Adam, puts him in the garden, and then he gives him positive law or additional law, covenantal law that says, if you do this, you die. If you obey, you live. Right? So you got natural law, you got positive law, covenantal law. Now, covenantal law can be changed. God is the God of the universe. He can change it, he can abrogate it, he can stop it, he can start it, he can unstop it, he can change it. But natural law is written on the heart of every man. This is why it doesn't matter. It's, it doesn't matter about some person out in the middle of nowhere that never heard about the law of Moses because the law of God is written on their heart, right? It's natural law. This is why you have prior to Sinai, men are guilty of sin because they have the natural law of God written on their heart and they disobey it. So for Adam, you have both the natural law and you have this additional covenantal law that God entered into this covenant with him in the garden. This makes sense to you? All right. So there's a covenantal relationship a positive law, what positive law does, it formalizes the covenant relationship between God and man. All right? Any questions so far? There's no way I explain that that good. All right. <laughs> all right, the next. All right. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Like in verse 8, it says that um, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then why does it say the same thing in verse 16? So the Bible gives two different accounts of creation, and they're both emphasizing two different things. One is emphasizing that God created. He's God. He created everything. And then the second one is emphasizing God created in the, in the context of the fall. Okay? 
That makes sense to you? So the first account is God made everything day one, two, three, four, five, six. Then the second account is, is God, this is God created everything, but the emphasis is the condition of man, the condition of the world, and the covenant that God made. And so it, it's, it's there to emphasize the absolute ridiculousness of Adam's fall. That makes sense to you? He, it didn't just say, oh, Adam fell. It was like, no, no, no. It was, it was amazing and it was wonderful and Adam was sinless and he was upright and he was perfect and then he fell. That's why it's so horrible and terrible. Cause so, so, the, so the first account is just saying, this is what happened. The second account is saying, this is the context. It's two different emphases. That makes sense to you? Okay, it's trying to achieve two different purposes. Okay? All right, um, any other questions? All right, so we're on to the next, the temptation and the fall, the temptation and the fall. So this here says, um, the, what the confession says here is, is that, yet they did not remain for long in their position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Now, immediately, the confession turns from man's privileged position to humanity's fall. It speaks of this short-lived bliss, the short-lived bliss of man's position of honor before God and describes the circumstances surrounding the fall and all the parties involved in the fall. So it states Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, does the Bible teach that Eve was seduced? Right? Does the Bible teach that? So Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 says, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So now there's a billion different things we can get from this. So, please stay focused, okay? <laughs> okay, just, we're gonna stay focused here, okay? The question is, does the Bible teach that Eve was seduced, okay? First Timothy 2, chapter four says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And Second Corinthians 11, three, um, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3 says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So clearly the Bible teaches that Eve was deceived by the serpent. Okay? The serpent's seduction of Eve was done by him casting doubt on God's intentions casting doubt on God's truthfulness, God's goodness, 
in God's motivations. All of these things were aimed at deceiving Eve and leading her to disobey God's command. That makes sense to you? How he deceived her, the way he went about deceiving her, was to get to cast doubt in her mind about God's truthfulness, God's goodness or benevolence toward her, God's motivations, or we could say the reliability of God's word, or God's trustworthiness. All, it's all, I'm just, those are just synonyms for the same thing. He just got her to doubt that God is reliable, God is truthful, and that God is good. That's how he got her to sin. That's how he deceived her, was to get her to doubt that. Okay, so the serpent begins by asking Eve if God really said that they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. Clearly, he said that. It got repeated how many times, right? So listen, the question, what it does, it, it casts doubt on God's words, commands, and his good intentions. That's very critical that you understand this, okay? The question not only casts doubt on the command itself, but it also indirectly suggests that God might not have Eve's best interest in mind. That make sense to you? The question is an attempt to create suspicion about God's good disposition toward Eve by suggesting that God is withholding something good from her. Okay? Does this make sense to you? Okay. Next, the serpent deceives Eve. The serpent deceives Eve by creating more doubt regarding the intention of God's command. So when Eve responds by explaining that they can eat from any tree except for the tree in the midst of the garden and that they shouldn't even touch it, the serpent, con the serpent contradicts what God said and says, you will not surely die. This implies that God's warning of death is not to be trusted, is not to be taken seriously, right? So the serpents, when the serpent says this, that you will not surely die, he's implying at best that the Lord is ill-informed. And at worst, he's a liar. Either way, he's not to be trusted, all right? He either does not know they won't die or he knows they won't die and he's lying to them. Some of y'all look confused. Some of y'all look confused. I can't go no further if you are. Is everybody understanding me? Okay. So that's what hit. When he says you will not surely die, he either at best, God's a liar or God doesn't know what he's talking about. Either way, if you don't know what you're talking about and you, or you're lying to me, I shouldn't trust you. Right? Okay? Next, the serpent seduced Eve by appealing to the goodness of the, or let me say it like this, I'm using my air quotes, the perceived goodness that would come from this disobedience. Okay? The serpent says that by eating the forbidden tree, she and Adam would gain knowledge and be like God, knowing good from evil. Family, it is actually a good thing to be like God. Is it not? 
Is it not? The, the, one of the goals of our salvation is to be holy like God is holy and to be conformed into the image of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's evil to try to obtain it in a way that God has said no to. You understand this? It's evil to try to obtain God's good gifts through disobeying him. All right? So, again, it brings into question God's good disposition toward her. If it is true, and it's not, but if it's true, what the serpent says, why would God withhold this from you, Eve? Look at it. It's good. It's desirable. It's going to bless you and make you wise. All of this is implying that God knows that that's a good thing for you to have. He just doesn't want you to have it. Do you understand? If all of that's true, how can he be good? How can he be good if all of this is true? If I'm withholding something good from my brother Christian that's going to bless him, why would I not give it to him if I love him? Can I honestly say that I'm good to him, that he's good to me, if I'm withholding this good thing from him? This is why I get up in that pulpit and I scream at y'all, God is good. Right? Listen, if you don't get this right, if you don't get this right, this is going to wreak havoc on the rest of your entire Christian life. Okay? If you do not start with God is good, period, it's going to affect how you view his laws. It's going to affect how you view his restrictions. Women, wives is going to affect whether or not you're going to submit to your husband. Husband is going to affect whether or not you love your wife like Christ led the church. Uh, children, it's going to affect whether or not you uh, obey your parents. It's going to affect how you work when it gets hard because there's going to be thorns and thistles, men, when you work. It's going to affect whether or not you're going to work hard. Okay. You're going to not believe Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good of those that love Christ Jesus and are called according to his purpose, right? It's going to affect your sanctification. It's going to affect how you view whether or not you can lose your salvation. All of this is tied to, is God good? Is he good? Okay? You have to get this right. Okay? This is how the, the serpent deceived Eve, and this is how he's going to deceive you. This is how he's going to deceive you. This is how he's going to get you to doubt whether or not these commands that God has given you are good, and if you're going to disobey him. This is how people don't have assurance of salvation. This is how people doubt whether or not they should come to Christ after they sin. It's because you doubt whether or not God is good. You have to get this right. God is good, family. God is good. Right? So the next statement of the confession says that Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and, and the command given to them 
by eating the forbidden fruit. Now, the reason why it says it's like this is because of what I talked about earlier. It says, Adam acted without any outside compulsion. I'll get into that. But it, here when it says, and deliberately transgressed the law of creation and the command given to them. So he's talking about the natural law that was written on Adam's heart that he should have obeyed just by virtue of being God's creation and the command, the covenant command to not eat of the tree. So both of those things were violated. And he did this without any outside compulsion, and he did it deliberately. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 14 says this. You literally have to do like hermeneutical, like origami to mess this up. Okay? It says, Adam was not deceived. Period. He wasn't. Right? The implications of this statement are absolutely staggering, family. Okay? Adam, our representative federal head, in the garden, with a full belly, right? A wonderful living condition in his upright, sinless, privileged position with the capacity to offer God perfect obedience, sin, transgress the law of God. Do you understand that? So every time one of us sin, we, are, it's, we got reasons. Right? It's because the woman that you gave me is the man that you gave me. My kid's acting up. I'm hungry. Um, you got like 50 million excuses for why it is you sin. Adam has none. None whatsoever at all. He has no reason to sin, right? Furthermore, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 6 again. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 6. Now, I'm not going to start a denomination on this, but it seems to strongly imply that Adam was there while his wife was being deceived. Okay? Look at the text. It says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took and ate the fruit. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, and then he ate. Now, I don't know. It could mean that he was actually there with her while she was being deceived, or it could just mean that he was with her once she gave it to him. I don't know. I'm kind of leaning toward the first one, right? Now, the, this chapter in Genesis may be one of the most tragic crimes in the entire Bible, okay? Adam, again, Adam possessed the capacity to resist sin, okay? And yet he consciously and knowingly transgressed the law. He violated the natural law of creation, the moral law that was etched onto his heart. He disobeyed the explicit covenant command given to him, the positive law that promised life. And Adam was tasked with cultivating and safeguarding the garden, and he deliberately chose to not do it. Okay? And most tragic of all, he failed in his role as a type of Christ. He failed in his role 
as a type of Christ. Romans 5.14 says this, Yet death reigned. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, a type of the one who was to come. Right? This passage, this is one passage, one of the passages where the church develops this idea that Christ is the second Adam or the true and better Adam. Christ is the true and better Adam. So I want you to consider Genesis chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. Genesis 3, verses 11 through 12. Look at this. It says that this is where the Lord confronts Adam after the fall, after he's already sinned. He, God, said, Genesis 3, 11, he, this is God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then pay attention to this. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the, gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So not only does he fail to obey God, he failed to protect and cultivate the garden because he never should have let the serpent in there to begin with. But he fails in his role as the bridegroom and he throws his wife under the bus. Right. It must be noted that. Despite the fact that Eve was deceived and seduced by the certain the serpent and she sinned first, the primary responsibility for the fall is placed on Adam. The reason for that is because Adam is the federal head. Adam is the representative head, not Eve. Okay, this is why when she bites the fruit, nothing happens. But when Adam bites it, it's a problem. He's the federal head. Okay, is all this making sense to you? Okay, the confession and more importantly, scripture makes absolutely clear that Adam acted without compulsion. Eve's seduction of Adam was not irresistible. In other words, he could have said no. He could have said, woman, go sit down. Okay? Adam willfully and consciously chose to break the law. Furthermore, when the Lord confronted Adam, he did not confront Eve, he confronted Adam. Okay? And Adam added insult to injury by placing the blame on his wife and God for his deliberate, willful, conscious sin. Okay, I'm, just, I'm trying to paint this picture for you how terrible this is. I need, you to get, I need you to understand this. Okay? Something else interesting. Like I said earlier, 1 Timothy 1, 2, 14. Adam was not deceived. Adam was not deceived. So this signifies that he probably fully comprehended the consequences of his obedience and Eve's. That make sense to you? Here's what, here's what I mean. So Adam knew, because he wasn't deceived, that his wife, after eating, was going to die. Right? What was the command and what was the threat? Don't eat from that tree or what? You'll surely die. So if he's not deceived, he knows, he knows full well what's going on. Right? Adam's not deceived. Adam's not confused. Adam's not 
under a shroud of ignorance, okay? He knows that his wife, after eating, is going to die. And Adam made a conscious decision to die with his wife, okay? Now, I know to some of y'all that sound romantic, sound like uh, Romeo and Juliet, but it's not. It's stupid, okay? It, it sounds romantic because he's willing to die with his bride. He's willing to die with his woman, right? But it's not because he wasn't supposed to die with his bride. He was supposed to die for his bride, okay? Just like the second Adam did. He was supposed to remain obedient to God while at the same time interceding for his bride. That's what he was supposed to do, family. Right? Instead of distancing himself from his wife and throwing his wife under the bus, what he was supposed to do was he was supposed to approach God and he was supposed to say something like this, Lord, my bride has sinned against you and violated your law and broken this covenant and listened to the hiss of the serpent. And I know because your word is true and you are faithful and you are just and you are holy, she's destined to die. But I'm willing to die for her. That's what he was supposed to do, family. That's what he was supposed to do. Right? Because this is precisely what the second Adam, our Savior, did for us, his bride, the church. Okay? In perfect obedience to God's covenant promises, he laid down his life for the sins of his bride, the church, you and I. Okay? Adam was supposed to obey God, but he failed. He was supposed to shield his bride for the serpent, from the serpent, but he failed to do that. He was supposed to represent all of his descendants, Adam, obediently and secure eternal life for them, yet he failed. But the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, succeeded everywhere the first Adam failed. And praise God, praise God, because that's why you and I are saved today. Okay, because he is truly the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ. He's the second Adam, the true and better Adam. Turn your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This is verse 12. I'm starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift and the free gift by grace of that one man, Christ Jesus, abounded for many. One man is the reason humanity dies. But the second man, the true and better man, is the reason another group of humanity can live. Okay? So, there's only two type of people in this world, right? 
you're either of Adam or you're of Christ. That's it. It's real simple. I'm going to keep it simple for y'all. I'm, I could have killed all of the racial tension and, the, and all the gender problems and all of that. Just like this. It's two kind of people in the world. you either of Adam or you of Christ. That's where you have to start. Right there. If you start anywhere else, it's problems. It's another sermon for another day. I told you not to get off track. I'm not getting off track. Okay, listen. Do you understand that when Adam fell, he fell from a pristine position? He had no reason to fall. It was deliberate, it was conscious, and it was on purpose. Amen? That's what makes it so terrible. And, and he, he did it with a full belly. Right? He did it with a full belly. He can't make the excuse that I didn't have enough money to feed my kids and uh, I had to do what I had to do. And he, he, none of those excuses are applicable here. Okay? It was just deliberate sin. Next, I'm running out of time. Listen, the permission and the purpose. The permission and purpose. <clears throat> God was pleased in keeping his wise and holy counsel to permit this act. Now, this act that they're referring to is the fall to permit this act because he had purposed to direct it for his own glory. Okay? Now, one could argue that Adam's sin ranks as one of the greatest transgressions ever committed in the history of humanity. You can make that argument. Okay? Yet, remarkably, this confession affirms that God, in his wisdom and holy counsel, was pleased to permit this sin for his glory, okay? He was pleased to permit his sin. This is another one of those things that you have to get your head around, okay? This confession finds no contradiction in asserting that Adam's sin leading to the fall of humanity was ordained by God, okay? This perspective aligns seamlessly with the doctrine of God's sovereignty, okay? Where God's allowance of sin is an integral part of his master plan of redemption, right? And it was ultimately designed to showcase his glory. Either God is in control of every single thing in human history or he's not God. you understand? This is why it's so important that you get this part of the Bible right. Okay, because otherwise you're going to have faulty definitions of words like sovereignty. So if you say God is sovereign, because we say it all the time, God is sovereign, amen, amen. But then we say, oh, but not over sin, then he, that's not sovereignty. That's, you got to make up another word. If there's something outside the scope of his sovereignty, then he's not sovereign. He's not all-powerful. He's not king of king and lord of lords. If there's something outside the scope of his reign, then you need another word. Don't take ours. That makes sense to you? Now, you can have another word, but you can't have this one. Okay? This statement underscores that God's eternal purpose included permitting sin in order for his glory to shine forth. Okay? 
Now, I've got to prove that because that's a bold statement, right? And I only got five minutes. Okay? <laughs> Listen. So what that means then is that every sin, every death, every disease, every betrayal, every calamity submits to God's perfect plan for God's glory. Okay? Everything that happens in human history, in this world, in your life, happened according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. Even the sin that was committed against you. Okay? Now, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10, verses, verse 5. You got to hurry up because I only got five minutes. <laughs> All right? Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Here's what the Bible reads. It says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. Against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize and plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the street. But he does not so intend. And his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. All right. Now, in this passage, we witness that the Lord is using the Assyrians as an instrument of judgment against a godless nation. Now, this godless nation is the nation of Israel that he's talking about here. Okay? Just take my word for it. You got to go home and read it later. He's talking about Israel. Right? It vividly illustrates that God, in his sovereignty, can ordain even sinful nations and their wicked actions to fulfill his divine purposes. Okay? The text tells us that Assyria is the instrument of God's anger, wielding his fury as a staff. It's God who sends Assyria against Israel as judgment. It's God who is commanding them to take spoil. It's God who's commanding them to seize and plunder. It's God who tells the Assyrians to tread Israel down like the mire of the street. But here is the intriguing part. That's not Assyria's intention. Assyria does not have noble intentions. Assyria is not thinking, oh, we're here to obey God and act as Yahweh's minister of, of justice. No, Assyria's heart is set to destroy and to do a lot of sin. That's why they're there. God is like, you're going there to be my ministers of justice. And Assyria in his heart is thinking, I'm just here to get some stuff. Okay? They're driven by their own dark, wicked, evil intentions and motives. And, and it, okay, so drop down to verse 12. Listen to what it says. All this leads to verse 12 where the Lord declares this. This is fascinating. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. That's wild. He's using them as an instrument of his justice. They're thinking something else is going on. They're doing exactly what God has ordained for them to do, and then he's judging them. Okay? I don't make the rules. I just play by them. That's what the Bible says. Both of those things are happening at the same time. Now, 
Some of y'all, because you got scientific minds, you want to square this box. But you don't even know how your car works and you drive it every day and you trust it. Okay? This is an unexplainable paradox. Man is making real decisions in real time and God is sovereignly running human history. Amen. Why you need to believe this? Right? Because the ultimate example of this exercise of divine authority can be found in Acts 2.22. Turn your Bibles to Acts 2.22. Y'all staying late today. I apologize if you need to go get your kids, go get them. I'm not stopping. Okay? <laughs> Acts 2.22. During this, during Peter's sermon, during Peter's sermon at, on the day of Pentecost, okay, the apostle Peter boldly declares that the Lord planned purposed and permitted the greatest crime in all of human history for his glory. Okay? Listen to his words in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay? So in the same sermon, this is the same sermon. If you go down to verse 36, he said, Peter is continuing. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, who planned it? God planned it. Who's guilty for murdering them? They are. Did God ordain the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Yes. You better say yeah. <laughs> right? He ordained the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by the hands of murderous, lawless men. Right? So, if you are struggling to believe that God can use wicked, evil intentions of men to achieve good purposes, that's why you struggle with your salvation. Because that, that is how you are saved through the gospel. Do you understand why you got to get this right? Do you understand why you have to get all of this right? Either God is concurrently running human history while wicked, evil men are doing evil things, and God is in sovereignly in control of all of that, or you really don't have a gospel. Jesus is completely, perfectly innocent of any crime. He's completely sinless. You have a spotless, sinless sacrifice. Therefore, for him to die on a cross is murder of an innocent man. Now, did, did that or did that not happen? Now, if you're hesitating right now, you have a problem. Because you're not saved without that act happening in human history at the hands of lawless men. And it has to be murder because you have a sinless, spotless, human savior. Right? So either he is innocent and he's murdered at the hands of lawless men, or you're not saved. So choose. 
Do you want your nice, neat, squared off, boxed off uh, theology, or do you want salvation? What do you want? Amen. I'll figure it all out later when we get to heaven. We'll figure out how, how it all worked out later. Right? But part of this, listen, I'm getting ready to rant. Part of this is happening because of the env- environment that you grew up in. Okay? You have a problem with not understanding paradoxes. Right? You don't read poetry. You don't read stories. You don't read none of these things. Right? You've been, they, went, they sent you to school and they pumped all the scientific like naturalism into your head. Right? So every, you got to have every I dotted and every T crossed until you start sinning. Then you'll do all kind of stupid things then. You don't got to understand nothing when you start sinning. Right? You look back, what was I thinking? <laughs> right? See what I'm saying? This is, that's the serpent. Okay? You have a Savior who is fully, truly man, innocent and he was murdered at the hands of lawless men and he actually died for your sin which means that the person who killed him is a murderer and it was all planned by the Lord for his glory and your good and salvation okay so again if you got a problem understanding how God can do both of these things you should also have a problem with how the gospel works. Right? If you're being consistent. But I've been around long enough to know that consistency is not necessarily a thing that everybody got to have nowadays. But nevertheless, this is what, this is why this stuff is so important. Right? Listen, application real quick so I can get you out of here. Knowing that God works through even the sinful actions of wicked men and he does this ultimately for his own glory and purposes, should provide you and me with profound confidence. Because we live in a world that is marked by sin and the consequences of sin, right? If God is not sovereignly permitting sin for the purpose of his glory, what assurances can you have in this world? Can you have any? If God is not sovereignly for his purposes and his glory, permitting sin, how can you say that Romans 8.28 is true? How can you honestly say that Romans 8.28 is true? And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. How can you honestly say that? How can you say that with a straight face and not believe that God is sovereignly in control of everything that has ever happened? Good, bad, and indifferent. You can't read and believe Romans 8.28 with any kind of consistency, right? So this verse reminds us that God is actively at work in every circumstance. Whether good, bad, good or bad, to accomplish his divine purposes for your good and his glory. This world is evil. This world is fallen. It's marred by sin. And God's sovereign hand is guiding every event even the sinful ones, toward his glorious purposes in in Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? And we can rest assured as believers that nothing happens 
outside of the scope of his providential sovereign plan. Now, you got to have that in a world that is full of sin and its consequences, that God is orchestrating every event ultimately to the benefit of those that love him. Y'all supposed to be shouting. All right, here's the second application. The fact that God is keeping his wise, is keeping with his wise and holy counsel that he permits sin because the purposes, because he purposes to direct them for his own glory provides, should also provide us comfort and confidence to the Christian because it emphasizes, listen, emphasizes God's ability to preserve and safeguard his people. You know, listen, if God is not sovereignly in control over everything that happens, right, he can't, he can't protect you in a world full of sin. So I'm going to need to say this as gingerly as possible. Okay, if life hasn't punched you in the throat yet, you just keep waking up, it's going to happen. I'm not saying it as a threat, it's just a fact, okay? <laughs> bad things happen. Amen? Amen? Old people, do bad things happen? All right, so only one person admitted they was old. Okay, listen, listen, bad things happen in life. People die, people you love get sick, people get hit by cars, all kind of stuff happen, right? And if God is not sovereignly in control of every one of those things, how can you believe he has the ability to preserve and safeguard his people, right? Jude verse 24 praises God. Because God, I told them they already know they're going they, they're free to leave if they want to. Um, Jude verse 24 praises God because he is able to keep you from stumbling, right? He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, okay? So, family, despite the pervasive influence that sin has in the world, we can trust that God is both a willing and able to keep you from falling away. So, I could be willing to do something, but not able. It means nothing. I could be able to do something and not willing. It means nothing. God is both willing and able. If he doesn't control all of human history, he's not able to do what Jude verse 24 says. He's not able to keep you, right? The assurances, this assurance that we read in verse 24 grants us confidence to navigate a world marked by sin, knowing that God's grace and power are sufficient to protect us and guide us all the way home, all the way home. Consequently, again, I'm going to say this again, every sin, even yours, every sin, even yours, every death, every disease, every betrayal, every calamity finds its place within God's perfect plan and orchestrated for God's glory in your good. Right? And everything that unfolds in human history transpires according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All this should give you confidence in the face of the challenges of a fallen world, a sinful world, 
and you can do it with trust and hope, knowing that God is in control and will ultimately bring about his glorious plan in Christ for his glory. Amen? Amen. That is a wonderful, glorious thing. Now, I know I'm done. Listen, I know y'all want to talk about marriage and all that type of other stuff because we're talking about Genesis 3. That's not the point. Okay? Those are applications. Okay? The point is, man fell, and God is sovereign over all of it. For his glory. Yes, even the fall was for the glory of God. Right? And you have to believe this. You have to believe this. Because people are going to sin against you greatly in this life. And if God does not have his hand on all of this, you're going to live this life in despair with no hope. Amen? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, that you are glorious, you are sovereign, and there's nothing outside of your purview and your control. God, help us to believe these things. Help us to have assurance and confidence that you are good and you are for your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hi, Vince. How you doing? I don't know. I'm doing better than I deserve.